There was a, uh, a gentleman that was on the side of a skyscraper building in New York City, a hundred or so stories up. He was sitting on one of those, or standing, I should say, on one of those platforms uh, because he was a window washer. You know, one of those guys that has the spray bottle and has the squeegee, at least I, I think that's how it works. Um, and he was standing there a hundred or so stories up cleaning the windows. Uh, side note, by the way, uh, you could not pay me all the money in the world to be that guy. Um, I will pay to jump out of an airplane, but I will not pay to stand on the side of a building. Um, it's just the way that I am wired. But anyways, he's standing there and he is washing uh, this window and he is finishing up with this window. And as he's finishing up, he goes and he hits the little mechanism uh, to help him to go down. And as he begins to go down, something goes terribly wrong. The platform underneath him drops out, and he's about to fall to his certain death. And as he is about to fall, he reaches out and he grabs one of the ropes that is holding up the platform. And so he's sitting there sort of dangling, if you can imagine with me just for a second, sort of dangling from this building, a hundred or so stories up, and he's in desperation mode, and he doesn't know what to do, and so he looks to heaven, and he says, somebody, please, help me. Somebody, please, help me. And this deep voice from heaven, loud voice, calls out below and says, let go of the rope. And he looks back up and he says, somebody else, please help me. <laughs> Have we ever been there before? Where God and his providence and his control and his government over us, where we may not be trusting in what he's doing at that moment in time, to where we're wanting another answer. We're wanting, please, somebody else, we're wanting something else besides the answer that maybe God is giving us. And so that's what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to see where this happens with Mary and Joseph. And they've had this happen before in their life, where they may have struggled a little bit with how God was providentially caring and watching over them. So stand with me, if you will, page 808 of your pew Bibles. And we're going to read Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. There is a black Bible right in front of you, uh, and that is a pew Bible so found on page 808 of that Bible. If you do not own a Bible uh, and you need one, that is a gift from us here at Perimeter Road as we continue to try to purify the church and penetrate the culture here in Valdosta, Georgia. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19 through 23, page 808. But when Herod died, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You may be seated. Now before we get started here in uh, Matthew, I need to explain to you a little bit about what is going on. 
I enjoy doing this, but also it helps us to get the context of what is happening here. And so you've got to understand who is writing this book, this Gospel of Matthew. And as you may know, and a big hint may have came your way, it is the disciple or the apostle Matthew. And he would have been writing this book in about 60 AD, people debate this, but between 50 and 180, he would have been writing this book. And so the time frame of this book, you must understand as well that this would have been written after Jesus' death, about 28, 30 years after Jesus' death. And he's writing it from the perspective of a Jew. But he's also writing it from the perspective of somebody who was looked down upon as a traitor because he was what? He was a tax collector, right? And so just to get you to understand a little bit about how the tax collecting system works so you can understand where the perspective of this book is coming from, you've got to realize that the Jews, the Israelite people, they did not like the Roman Empire leading them because they were taxing them, they were oppressing them so heavily. About 60% of their wages were taken away for them. The poor would get poor, the rich would get richer, and there was no middle class. And so you had people like Matthew, who eventually became a disciple and an apostle of Jesus, walked and talked with Jesus. He was one who was one of these tax collectors. And what the Roman Empire would do is they'd say, okay, we're going to get you, a Jew, to go collect taxes from your people. Because it's going to be easier for you to do it. And we have a certain percentage that we want you to get from them. And then whatever you get on top of that is just sort of your salary. That's what you get. So we're going to back you, but you can get whatever you want on top of that. You just give us our money. And so sometimes these tax collectors, they may get 10, 20, 30%, who knows? But obviously they would want to pad their own pockets as well. So there was a lot of people who did not like them, who despised them. And as the Jews are there sitting here and they're wanting this Roman empire to not be there any longer, they're wanting this oppression to go away. They're wanting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that they've been reading about in the Old Testament. They're wanting him to come onto the scene. They're not liking the oppression that is happening in their life, and they really don't like the tax collectors who are siding with them either. And so here is a Jewish tax collector writing after the crucifixion of Jesus to an audience that mainly would have been Jew and from that perspective, but obviously we're the audience in a sense as well. So we're learning from it also. But you must know that before we begin to look into what's about to happen, because then you may not understand the significance of the event that is going on here. So let's look back now with me, if you will. Verse 19, but, it's funny, I promise I'm not doing this on purpose, but every time I preach recently, I feel like there's that word, but, and I love my phrase, and I'm going to say it again, remember the buts in scripture, not the B-U-T-T buts, but the B-U-T buts, because when you see them, there's significance in that, okay? I didn't plan it, Lord Almighty planned that, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph Uh, in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, the question we must begin to ask ourselves is why is that transition word there? Why is that but there? To know that we have got to go earlier in the passage to verse 13 to understand that. Now, Clint did a wonderful job, a masterful job of preaching on that last week, but we have to go back there and see what verse 13 says. And it says, and I quote, now, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
So an angel of the Lord has spoken to Mary and Joseph, and they have told Mary and Joseph to take their sweet little baby Jesus down to Egypt to flee from the atrocities that could be coming there with Herod. And I can almost guarantee you, as Mary and Joseph are probably going down to Egypt, they're probably asking a lot of questions and wondering what is going on. And you need to be asking yourself the same question. Why Egypt? What's the point in Egypt? Could we not go into Ur? Could we not go into the Tigris or the Euphrates? Could we not go into Samaria? Could we not go into another area of the country instead of Egypt? Why Egypt? And Mary and Joseph, as they're sitting there, what's happening to them as they're traveling, making that long trek back to Egypt? They're being reminded, aren't they, of what? Of what happened to them, right? And what happened to not them in particular, but their people, right? This flood of memories is coming back and the atrocities that took place and the slavery that was there and the blood that was spilled and that soaked into the soil in Egypt, they're being reminded of that, right? Of the oppression, of being beaten, of having to make bricks and having to gather the straw for bricks. And if they didn't make the same quota, guess what? They would be whipped for it. They're being reminded of this, but also they're probably asking themselves the question of God, why, why Egypt? Couldn't we go somewhere else and spend some time with the fam or something? I've got an uncle over here. Maybe I could go here. Why Egypt? They're beginning to ask themselves this question and to wonder why, and they may be doubting, in a sense, even the providence of God in this. Of God, I, I know you are in control. I know you're going to take care of me. But I'm not really understanding why Egypt. But what do we see happening here? They do what? They obey, don't they? And they go down to Egypt. Now, as you're thinking about Egypt as well, we also know that there was these 10 miracles that took place in Egypt as well. Sometimes we refer to them as the plagues, things that God did, right? And then he would harden Pharaoh's heart and then he would do another one. And do we remember, and I know they would have remembered this. I know Mary and Joseph would have remembered this. I know Matthew, who wrote this book, would have remembered this. I know his audience at the time would have remembered this as well. But a very significant event that took place during that time would have been what? That 10th plague, do we remember it? That 10th plague of the Passover? Something that they would celebrate every single year? Where this angel of death would pass over the doorways if you did something? If not, your firstborn child would be killed. But the Lord sent this plague. And what they would have to do is they would have to take an unblemished lamb. They would have to slaughter this unblemished lamb. And they would have to put the blood on their doorposts. Do we remember? Maybe I've told you this before, but I, I just wonder if you remember. Do you remember where the blood had to go on the doorpost? It had to go on the sides, didn't it? It had to go here and it had to go here. But do you remember the other place that it had to go? It also had to go on the top as well. So can you picture with me just for a second from a Jewish audience thinking about the fact that Mary and Joseph took their sweet little baby Jesus down to Egypt and that they're remembering this Passover of this unblemished lamb that was slaughtered, that was slain, and the places on the doorpost where this blood would have been put, here, here, and here, can you remember and think for a second that they would know what's happening here, that they would be reminded of maybe who baby Jesus is? Because the crucifixion at that time would have what? It would have already happened. 60 AD, it would have already happened. 
So the whole point in Mary and Joseph going down to Egypt, guess what? It wasn't because God was trying to save them from pure destruction. He could have taken them anywhere else. But he took them down there to show the symbolism that was going on with the Passover. To show that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is here and his name is Jesus. Now some of you are here sitting in here today. I just said that and guess what? It just went like this. Some of you who are sitting in here today, you're trying really hard to keep the eyeballs open because you don't understand the significance of what I just said. And you've also got to understand that a lot of those Jewish readers back then, the same thing would have happened to them. I met one of those guys one time. I was in Israel about 10 or 15 years ago. I toured the Holy Land. I had a guy who was our guide. His name was Ronnie Hubani. If anybody's ever been to Israel on a tour, get him as your guide. He's not a Christian, or at least he wasn't at that time. This is many years ago. He may be now, uh, by the grace of God. But I remember as I met Ronnie Hubani, he claimed to be an Orthodox Jew. And that, that's the Jew that doesn't believe in Jesus. That's the Jew that doesn't believe in the New Testament. That's the Jew that believes that Jesus still hasn't come onto the scene yet, right? Now, he claimed that he was a practicing Orthodox Jew, but he didn't practice it very much. As we went to the top of the Dome of the Rock, there's a big sign there that says, the rabbi says that practicing Orthodox Jews can't go to the top because it's Muslim-controlled. He went with us, right? I guess money talks. But here is this Orthodox Jew that doesn't believe that Jesus came onto the scene. He doesn't believe that in Matthew, because he won't even read it, what was going on there was pointing to the Jesus of the Old Testament, the prophecies being fulfilled there. And so here I am, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down with Ronnie Hubani, and I'm going to take him through the Old Testament, and I'm going to show him in all these different places, whether it was Isaiah or the Exodus or Genesis, I'm going to show him where it shows Jesus, and he's going to come to know the Lord, Right? And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to him for about two or three hours. We're actually on a sailboat in the Red Sea. It was a tough environment. And we're sitting there. And I remember he's just looking at me like, nah, I don't believe it. I was talking about something else. Nah, I don't see it. And I'm just like, how can you not see it? How is it not right there in front of you? Nah, I don't believe it. And I have to be reminded that ultimately who? God is in control. God draws us. God does the changing. We're called, right, to be diligent in making sure we're sharing the gospel with those that are around us, but it's ultimately God who does the growth. So here the scales had not been, at this point in time in his life, had not been removed from his eyes. The veil had not been torn. The curtain had not been torn from the front of his heart. He still had a heart of stone that did not want to do anything with Jesus. And so for some of you, that may be the same thing that's happening to you right now as I'm reading to you, and there's a clear sign of this Jesus. There's a clear sign of this second Moses that has come, a better Moses that has come, when this rush of memories of what would have happened previously would have been in their minds, and now there's a second time that they're going down there and they're going to come out, and it's just this amazing picture of now what's happening. They went from a place of slavery. It went from a place of captivity. It went from a place of this, this t these terrible instances that happened there to now a place of what? Of refuge and of safety and of security. Now they're going down there to do what? To flee from Herod. Of all places they're going. And so it's amazing how when Jesus comes onto the scene, what happens? 
He makes things new again, doesn't he? He changes a place that was very sinful, that was very wretched, and he makes it a place of what? Of refuge and safety and security because he's a better Moses. Just like he's the second Adam, just like he's the second Abraham, just like he's the second Moses, he is a better Moses. But in the midst of this, I guarantee you, as I mentioned before, I guarantee you that Mary and Joseph probably struggled. They struggled with going down there and probably asking themselves the question of, of why here? Because at that point in time, the crucifixion hadn't happened yet. Why are we going down there? What's the point? What's the significance of that? Does that happen to you, though? Am I the only person in this room that that happens to, that I struggle sometimes with wondering why God does what he does and how he's working in this situation and me wanting another answer besides the one that he gave me? And so as we continue on, it says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So we're seeing now they went down to Israel. Now we're seeing that God is providing again. Herod is dead and he died a horrible death from what all historians say. And now they're going back because he is dead. Now, can you imagine Mary and Joseph getting now to go back? Think about it for a second. We've got some mothers in here that can probably picture this with us. They're getting to go back. They're getting to go back to probably what they think is Bethlehem, an area of Judea and Israel, probably a prominent uh, 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 place where Israelites are. And they're thinking to themselves, yes, now we get to take sweet little baby Jesus. We get to put him in the best school. We get to start some carpentry work going on here, sell some of our pieces. Man, this is going to be awesome, right? I just can't wait. And that long trek back, they're just planning through all of this, what car maybe they're going to buy, what picket fence they're going to get. They're going to start a new life. They are ready and they are excited, right? And it says, and he rose. So what did he do? He obeyed. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And then there's another transition word there. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. Now, who was Archelaus? It tells us a little bit about him, doesn't it? He's the son of King Herod. He's also the oldest son, and he's also very, very ruthless, just like his father was, as Clint did a great job of explaining to us last week. And so here his son now is in authority over that region of Judea and in Israel. And so now what is happening here? It says he was afraid to go there, Joseph was, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So here they are on their way back to Israel. They're so excited because they're going to put him in the best school. They're so excited because they're going to have the best job. They're going to be around family again. They're so excited because they're going to start their new life again. King Herod is dead, and now all of a sudden, what do we see happening? Whoop. They're having to go that way. And they're having to go to Galilee. Why Galilee? Why Nazareth? What is the significance of that? You've got to ask yourself that question, don't you? It's there for a reason. 
It was put there for some purpose. So why Galilee? Well, Galilee, you know what? Anybody who was from Galilee that was a Jew, guess what? They were despised and they were rejected. They were looked down upon. Why? Because there was a big Roman garrison there that held all these Roman soldiers. And if you lived in Galilee, you were seen as what? As siding with the enemy. You were seen as one who uh, would come alongside and be a part of what the Roman Empire was doing at the time. So anybody who was from that area was despised and was rejected. Now, the interesting thing in the very last uh, phrase here, in the very last verse here, it says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's not a single prophecy in the Old Testament that talks about him being called a Nazarene. What am I supposed to do with that? How do I handle that? I don't understand that. Why is that there? Well, you've got two options. All right? The first option I just mentioned a little bit about. The first option is that the reason that it was said that way is because anybody who was from that area was looked down upon, was despised. And we know in Isaiah, right, 53, it talks about Jesus and it talks about him being despised and rejected. And there's other places, multiple places within the Old Testament where it talks about that. So maybe that's the the symbolism. Maybe that's the connection there. But there's also another uh, uh, thing as well that could possibly be going on there as well. Is that Nazarene in the Hebrew uh, is a lot like Netzer. In the Hebrew language, they didn't use vowels. They only used consonant letters. And so a lot of times you may have these words that are really close within their letters, within their consonant letters, and so you may get them confused, or there may be some symbolism there because they're a lot alike. So when you're saying Nazarene, they're saying that it looks like, a lot of times, like the word Netzer. Well, the word Netzer within the Hebrew language means branch or shoot. And if we can remember that from Isaiah 11, what happened there? There was this stump of what? of Jesse, right? This tree stump, the symbolism of this tree stump of Jesse. And out of that stump, what was going to happen? A branch or a shoot was going to spring up. And with this branch or shoot, this lowly, humble little shoot, branch or shoot was going to spring up. It was going to bring fruit. And it was going to remake that tree better than it ever was before. So a lot of times people believe that, okay, well, maybe that's what that is. Maybe it's uh, it's lining up there with Netzer of that branch or that shoot that's coming out of the stump of Jesse. We know who Jesse was, right? It was David's father. We know that Jesus came from the bloodline of David. So therefore, there was Jesus uh, coming, uh, that representation of that branch or that shoot. So maybe that's what it's talking about. So those are sort of your two options. But can you imagine with me just for a second of what Mary and Joseph what they would have been asking themselves, what they would have been saying when they got that redirection to Galilee. God, why are you taking us there? Of all places. I mean, think about what Mary and Joseph, what they had been through, right? They had had baby Jesus originally. People looked down upon them because it wasn't Joseph's. 
Now they're having to go to Egypt. Now they're coming back and they're thinking they're going to start all new again and everything's going to be great. And now they're having to redirect to this area that everybody despises and rejects. But has that ever happened in your life? Has it? Have you ever been in a place or been praying to God about a situation and you're just wondering how God is working in this situation? God, I know that you're in control. God, I know that you're providentially governing me and you're helping me, but in in the midst of this, I can't see how it's happening. I can't see how it's working. God, is there anybody else? Is there another answer to this problem that I have? Because I don't want to trust you in that answer, in that calling. God, I want to stay in my comfortable little bubble and I want to worship this goddess of comfort and I don't want to worship you. And so God, is there anything else that I can do? Please. Instead of worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what do we do? We bow down to the goddess of comfort. And we allow ourselves not to go in that direction because we don't want to get away from the idolatry that we have right here. And that's a struggle for us, isn't it? It's a struggle for all of us, isn't it? Trusting in that control, right? Because we want that control. I remember, and I I alluded to this story before for those of you that come on Wednesday nights, and I'm not going to tell the whole story this time. Um, But uh, I remember that that, that first year uh, that I was graduated from college and that I worked at Valdosta Middle School uh, as a health and PE teacher. That was a rough year for me. I believe that all teachers should be paid double and that they deserve every single vacation that they can get. Amen. Yes. I believe that because I was there for a year and I couldn't hack it. But that was one of the toughest years of my life. I would have to wake up early in the morning, not only to get to uh, duty, uh, but also because I had to get to my knees and I had to pray because I didn't know if I was going to make it that day. I didn't know if some kid was going to try to beat me up. I didn't know if some kid I was going to have to beat up. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if they were going to cuss me out. I wasn't sure. But I was not doing a good job of controlling that situation at all. And that's what I wanted, right? And so as I'm sitting there in that moment, in that year of school, I remember thinking to myself, God, why am I here? Like, what are you, what are you doing right now? Like, I don't, I don't understand this. I remember, I'll tell you a funny story. Will's not here, so I can tell it. Uh, but uh, Will, he actually did his practicum teaching with me for, for his, his three-week practicum. It took him three weeks to realize that he was completely changing his degree, and he was going to get a general studies degree, and he wasn't going into teaching. And he, and he uh, did his practicum with me and observed my class. And so I'm uh, thankful that I, I was able to help him to make that decision. But I just remember being there in that moment, in that time, trying to figure out what God was doing and how he was working in my life. And now I can remember by looking back years and years later, and I can see now how God was working in my life. Because there will be situations, there will be times that will come up in ministry, yes, even here at Perimeter Road, that are tough. But I always remind myself of that year at Valdosta Middle School, and I say to myself, there is nothing Absolutely nothing that is that tough. You can bring me any problem you want to bring me, and it is not that bad. And I'm just being honest with you. That's me, right? My mom was a teacher for 20-something years. She loved it. 
But that was a struggle for me. But I can look back years later and I can see how God was working every single step of the way. But in the moment, in the time, I was struggling to trust God in that moment, in that time. I wanted a different answer. Is there another answer? Is there something else? Please, God. Because I wasn't willing to trust God in that moment and in that time. I mean, think about it from the perspective of Jordan and Sarah. I mean, can you imagine with me for a second of missionaries that we support here, all of them blonde-haired, blue-eyed, going to a place of Beirut, Lebanon, who they actually had to close school this past week because of the riots that were going on because of Jerusalem being declared the capital. Can you imagine with me for a second that family going there? I've heard people talk about it before. Yeah, maybe I would be a missionary there without kids. Well, think about it for a second now if you do have kids and a lot of them, and they're all blonde hair, blue eye, and a place that only has about 5,000 non-Muslims in it of a population of about 2 million or so. What if God is calling you there? Is there anyone else? Or would you be like Joseph is in this story, be obedient to what God is calling you to do, even though it may be something that you don't quite understand, but you're going to trust God in that moment and that time and in his providence that he will take care of you. Because I can almost guarantee you in a room of people this size that some of you in here are very comfortable sitting in that pew and you're very comfortable living whatever life you may live, but God may be tugging you, God may be pulling you in a different direction, but you don't want to hear that because it's going to take you out of that pew or it's going to take you out of the comfort of your little world. And my hope and my prayer for you is that you would allow God to work in your life in amazing ways. That you would allow him to take control of your life and that you would stop trying to be the king of your kingdom. Because that is a struggle that we have struggled with from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. And so I pray that you would fight against that each and every day of your life and you would submit to his authority And that you would realize that the King of kings and the Lord of lords has come on the scene. And his name was Jesus. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for today, God. We thank you so much, God, just for your amazing, amazing grace. And Lord, I pray that as we read through, continue to read through Matthew, God, that we would be reminded of Emmanuel, God with us, God, that Jesus has come onto the scene, God, and one day he will return again. And that, Lord, we would allow his providence to take control of our life, that he would, God, just continue to be there for us, and we would allow that to happen and not reject that or turn from that, God. And that, if Lord, if we ever question that, God, that we would find the answers in your word. And I just thank you so much, God, for just everything that you have given us and that you have done for us in our lives, God. And I thank you for your word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray, God, that we would love it and that we would read it and that, God, you would open up the eyes of our heart each and every day and that, God, you would begin to turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh to the desire to soak up your word. We pray this in your son's precious name through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. Amen.